The Senate will come back today and stay until the majority leader says it's time to go home. The House is now in its Christmas recess, and I don't expect we'll see them back until January 9th. Last week in the House, the House came back on Monday and voted to pass three bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 1147, the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, and H.R. 357, the Ensuring Accountability in Agency Rulemaking Act. Then the House took up and passed four bills under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 357, the Ensuring Accountability in Agency Rulemaking Act, by a vote of 218 to 203. On Wednesday, the House took up H.R. 1147, the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act, and passed it by a vote of 330 to 99. Then the House took up H.R.E.S. 918, a resolution authorizing an impeachment inquiry against President Joe Biden. The vote was 221 to 212, with every Republican in the body voting in support and every Democrat in the chamber voting against. One Democrat, Brad Schneider of Illinois, didn't vote. Then the House took up H.R.E.S. 927, a resolution condemning anti-Semitism on university campuses and the testimony of university presidents in the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. The resolution passed by a vote of 303 to 126. Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky, voted against it. And Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, didn't vote at all. On Thursday, the House took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. One of them was the conference report to accompany H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act, which had passed the Senate a day earlier. And they were done and gone until the second week of January. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back on Monday and voted to confirm Richard E. N. Federico to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Harry Coker to be National Cyber Director. Then the Senate voted to reject a motion to table an amendment offered by the Majority Leader to H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act. Then the Senate voted to pass the National Defense Authorization Act. Then the Senate agreed to a motion to invoke cloture on the conference report to accompany H.R. 2670, the NDAA. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to agree to a motion to waive a point of order against the conference report. Then, by a vote of 87 to 13, the Senate agreed to the conference report to accompany H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Jerry Edwards, Jr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Louisiana. Then the Senate voted to confirm Brandon S. Long to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Louisiana. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the nomination of Martin O'Malley to be Commissioner of Social Security for the remainder of the term expiring in 13 months. On Tuesday, the Senate will hold a vote at 11.30 a.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of Christopher Charles Fonzone to be an Assistant Attorney General at the Department of Justice. 
Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see a vote on the nomination of Sarah E. Hill to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Oklahoma. And, of course, the whole point of cutting a week off the Senate's planned Christmas break is to have members of the body ready to vote on a compromise emergency supplemental spending bill in the event negotiators are able to work out an agreement to everyone's satisfaction. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now to the latest on the House Freedom Caucus. There was a bit of drama inside the House Freedom Caucus last week. After the board recommended to the group that it elect Virginia Republican Bob Good as its next chairman, outgoing board member Warren Davidson of Ohio penned a letter to his colleagues urging them to find someone to vote for other than Good. Quote, I ask that we consider how to best increase our influence while preserving our power to move policy in the right direction, he wrote. Quote, I strongly feel that Bob Good as chairman will impair that objective. I do not have an alternative nomination, but as my final fiduciary duty as a board member, I ask that you prayerfully consider electing someone else as chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, end quote. Good was elected with no opposition, despite Davidson's letter. Good was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker, but he is not a supporter of Donald Trump for the GOP presidential nomination. He endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president earlier in the year. Now let's talk about surveillance. The sharper-eyed among you noticed a few moments ago that when I went through the discussion of what happened on the House floor last week, I didn't say anything about the reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's because the House didn't vote on the matter after all. When we talked about it last week, I told you that the House Judiciary Committee and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence had both fashioned their own reauthorization bills and Speaker Johnson had not been able to choose between them. So he planned to put both bills on the floor and then send it to the Senate, whichever one got more support. The House GOP conference met last Monday evening to discuss the two bills, and after that discussion, the Speaker decided that a better solution would be to ask the two committee chairmen to work together to fashion a compromise that they could both get behind. So Speaker Johnson made the decision to pull the two bills from the floor calendar, and instead have the two committees attempt to work out a compromise. The law was set to expire at the end of the year. An amendment extending the authority for another four months was added to the National Defense Authorization Act. So when that conference report passed, both houses and went to the president, it extended the FISA provision long enough to give everyone time to work out a compromise when they get back from the Christmas break. Now, let's talk about that emergency supplemental spending bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is so convinced negotiators are going to reach agreement that he has cut short the Senate's planned three-week Christmas break, and he's held them in town for an extra week. Speaker Mike Johnson, on the other hand, is so certain that nothing that Schumer sends him is going to be worth putting on the floor of the House that he's sent his House colleagues home for three weeks, secure in the belief that the Senate will produce nothing. For those hoping for a positive outcome to the negotiations over an emergency supplemental spending bill, that is, an emergency foreign aid bill, to be specific, calling for the expenditure of $110 billion to assist Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan with some of it spent on the southern border, 
The good news is that the Biden administration finally appears to have realized they're serious about discussing changes to border policy, and they've sent DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to join the talks. But as of this morning, after what were called marathon discussions over the weekend failed to produce anything resembling an agreement, we don't even have a framework agreement in place yet, let alone legislative text. Stay tuned. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. On Wednesday morning at 9.30 a.m., House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio prepared to greet Hunter Biden for a closed-door deposition in a cavernous hearing room in the Rayburn House office building. Biden failed to show up. Instead, Biden defied their subpoena. He was outside, on the other side of the Capitol Dome, on the Senate side, holding forth to reporters gathered at a spot called the Senate Swamp that sits just about a dozen yards across the parking lot from the steps of the Senate. He was there on the Senate side for a specific reason. As long as he was on the Senate side, he was out of reach of the House Sergeant-at-Arms, who, if Hunter had been on the House side of the Dome, could have been directed by the Speaker to detain Hunter. Safely on the Senate side, Hunter spoke for a few moments to the assembled reporters about how he was there to, in his words, testify at a public hearing today, even though he went nowhere near the hearing room that had been prepared for him in advance. He said he would, quote, answer any of the committee's legitimate questions, but he wouldn't even take reporters' questions. He said the Republicans' inquiry was based on, quote, distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies, end quote, even though the record developed by the three committees of inquiry has shown the lies are coming from the Bidens. Hunter's refusal to appear, as per a congressional subpoena, may have sealed the deal for the House vote later that day on whether or not to formally open an impeachment inquiry against his father. Anybody who was still sitting on the fence about the value of opening an impeachment inquiry may well have been tipped toward the yes side of that vote because of Hunter's defiance of a duly issued subpoena. Hunter's statement shifted the Biden goalposts once again. He said, said, Hunter, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not my investments at home and abroad and certainly not as an artist. You will recall that Joe Biden initially declared that he had, quote, never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealings and had, quote, never discussed these matters. Then the White House shifted gears and said Joe wasn't involved in his son's business. Now we've added a new qualifier. Joe is not financially involved in his son's business dealings. Here's the problem. There are witnesses who say otherwise. Tony Bobolinsky and Devin Archer are former business partners of Hunter's, along with photos and emails and text messages and other records to back up their stories. They've testified that Joe met in person or on the phone with dozens of so of Hunter's so-called clients. Bank records show that tens of millions of dollars flowed from foreign sources to Biden family bank accounts. And courts have ruled that whether or not the family had directly benefits is irrelevant, that simply enriching a family member counts legally as a benefit to the head of the family. Not surprisingly, Oversight Committee Chairman Comer and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jordan did not take lightly Hunter's decision to defy their subpoena. Quote, 
Hunter Biden today defied lawful subpoenas, and we will now initiate contempt of Congress proceedings, end quote, they declared. Now to the latest on the Jenny Beth Show. Episode 44 of the Jenny Beth Show dropped on Wednesday, and it features an interview with one of my oldest friends in the conservative movement, Ken Blackwell of the Family Research Council. Ken has served at the top levels of the federal government, appointed to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Human Rights Commission and Deputy Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Ken has also served in elected office as Mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio, and as Treasurer and Secretary of the State of Ohio. Jenny Beth's discussion with Ken covers election integrity. Ken insists that if you're not in the room, you're not in the game, and he's right. Tune in at any of your favorite podcast spots, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and others. And that's our Washington Report for this week. Have a Merry Christmas and a jolly new year.